Welcome to Beyond Prisons. We've been on hiatus for the last month, but in the coming weeks we'll bring you clips, audio, and interviews connected to the Millions for Prisoners Human Rights March in Washington, D.C., and a whole set of new interviews with guests. In this episode, Kim and Brian caught up with Victoria Law, a freelance journalist. She is a co-founder of Books Through Bars NYC, which sends free books to incarcerated people nationwide, and the editor of Tenacious, a zine of art and writings by women in prison. She is the author of Resistance Behind Bars, The Struggles of Incarcerated Women, and the co-author of the upcoming Your Home is Your Prison, which explores how proposed alternatives to incarceration expand the carceral system. You can follow her on Twitter at L-V-I-K-K-I-M-L. You can see more of her work at victorialaw.net. You know, this was actually the first question that I had for you, Victoria. Um, mm-hmm. I was wondering if you could just talk to us a little bit about the process of writing this book, um, a little bit about, you know, what it's about in your words. Um, you know, I also know that you work on a publication called Tenacious. I mm-hmm. um, yes. So if yes. you could just talk about, uh, you know, about your experiences and the, and the method of putting this book together, that would be great. Sure. So... I'm going to go back a little bit. Um, So I'm going to go back a little bit and I guess go back to like when I first started thinking about resistance and organizing in women's prisons. Um, So I had been involved in several prison support, organizing to support people in prison, Um, you know, projects when I was in high school and then in college, um, including, you know, like doing direct actions to stop the execution of political prisoner Mumia Abu-Jamal in the 1990s when he actually like had an execution date that was August of 1995. Um, You know, like doing jail support for people who'd gotten arrested, you know, at various protests, starting a Books Through Bars program to send free books and other reading material to people incarcerated around the country. So I had this, you know, like sort of like, okay, I have worked with folks, you know, like on the outside around like solidarity. I'd been writing to some men in prison. Um, And I got to college and at one point I took a political science class and we were assigned to go research, you know, a topic, you know, and I chose to look at what prison organizing looked like post 1970s. So what happens to prison organizing after COINTELPRO has decimated the outside movements that lent so much support to people organizing inside, what happens when the Black Panthers are no longer, you know, a, a huge movement anymore that can lend support? What happens when, you know, like what happens when you've got Reagan and everything else happening? And what I was seeing and what I thought I would see was that, you know, like people were doing things, there were still riots and rebellions, but there were also like study groups, there were also work strikes, there were people trying to organize prison labor unions, even though the prison administrations never recognized these unions as unions. Um, So there was organizing happening, it just wasn't making, you know, the front page of the New York Times. But at the same time, when I got to the end of the semester and I looked at everything I had amassed, I realized it was all about men. Like it was like men, 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 men. And so I asked people, I said, well, what's happening in women's prisons? You know, why is there nothing about women's organizing in prisons? And people who had been doing 
prison support work for years, if not decades, you know, people who were like married to people in prison or, you know, like were related to people who were incarcerated were telling me again and again, women don't organize. You're not finding anything because women aren't resisting, women aren't organizing. And I thought that this was really strange because there's a long history of women organizing all over, you know, all over the country and all over the world. So how would it be that these, I think it was like 90,000 women incarcerated at the time, are all sitting on their hands Mm -hmm. and just quietly putting up with all these horrific conditions that just didn't seem right to me. So I thought to myself, okay, I want to know what's happening. Actually, no, I thought to myself, I want to know what's happening. And at the same time, I think I was eight and a half months pregnant and I was trying to finish college. And my goal was just get the stupid piece of paper and get out. Mm-hmm. So you can take your required classes and be done with it. Um, and so I had brought this up with the professor whose class I had taken. And she said to me, well, next semester, I want you to look at that. I was like, um, okay, I'm about to have a baby. You know, like, I really just want to like graduate. Like I want to take my required classes and get out of school. And she said to me, no, you ask a really important question and I want you to look into it. And here's what we'll do. I know that you're going to have a baby, so we will. I will not require you to schlep yourself out to campus, you know, every week to meet with me at a regular time. We will meet when it's convenient for you, at a place that might be more convenient for you than like an hour away. Um, if you need to bring the baby, you bring the baby. You know, this is totally fine. The only thing I'm not letting you slack on is your scholarship and your research. But I want you to look at this question. Um, wow. And so, so that's what I did. You know, so I had like a six-week-old baby and. I was like starting to look at what was happening inside women's prisons. So the first thing I thought was I should throw everything out that I know about what I think of when I think of resistance and organizing, because I came in with a very preconceived notion of what resistance and organizing was going to look like. So since I wasn't finding instances of women forming study groups or, you know, holding work strikes or trying to organize prison labor unions, I thought, okay, maybe I'm looking in the wrong places. Maybe I'm looking for things that are not there. So I threw out everything that I I thought I knew about prison organizing, and I just started reading literature about women in prison. And what I found was that there was a different set of priorities for many women. Like, by and large, if they had children, their first priority was their children. Their first priority was not, you know, um, working conditions. if they did not have children, their first priority usually was something revolving around healthcare, you know, because, uh, and a lot of them talked about domestic violence and domestic violence as a pathway to prison. And these were not things that were coming up when you read about prisons in general. Like if, if you just assume that there is no gender to prisons um, and everybody is the same gender and has the same experiences, you weren't hearing about um fears of losing children or trying to stay connected to their children or um, trying to overcome histories of abuse and domestic violence or, you know, trying to get reproductive health care in a system that didn't recognize um, reproductive health care as a serious health need. Uh, So what I realized is that if you have a different set of priorities, the way that you organize is going to look different than if you're said if your set of priorities is forming a labor union or, you know, having study groups or, you know, fighting the prison administration, you know, fighting staff violence as like men who riot rather than, you know, other ways to challenge um, staff abuse and staff violence. 
And at the same time, I started reaching out to women inside. So what I did was anytime I found any mention of a woman that did something, you know, Beverly Bannister in Oregon, you know, wins a lawsuit against CCA and the Oregon Department of Corrections around sexual abuse in a CCA prison that Oregon had contracted with. And I wrote to her and I said, you know, like I'm a college student, I'm trying to like learn more about um, what's going on inside women's prisons and also the actions that women are taking. So not just like what, what are the bad things that are happening to you, but what are you doing around this? And what help have you gotten from people on the outside? And, you know, so I would write women and sometimes, you know, women would write back and be like, who are you? And other times women would be like, okay, great. You know, these are the things that I'm really prioritizing in my life, like access to my children, healthcare, mental health care. You know, the fact that I've been placed in solitary confinement over and over, every time I ask for healthcare, they send me to solitary. When I asked them what they were doing about it, I realized that there, was, there were different ways that women were going about it. So they weren't necessarily staging a riot or an uprising that would make the news. You know, maybe they were doing things in different ways. Maybe they were sitting in the law library and helping other women navigate all the paperwork and the legal work necessary, necessary to keep guardianship and custody of their children, which is not something that's going to like really pique anybody's, you know, it's not mm -hmm. going to like pique anybody's interest as like, this is organizing um, mm -hmm. type of thing for, and then I learned about clemency, mass clemency campaigns that domestic violence survivors in prison had been waging throughout the um, 1990s where women got together and they realized that they were all in prison because of domestic violence, many of them for defending themselves against their loved one's abuse. And in Ohio, in Kentucky, and in California, and then there's another state that I don't remember, they, they actually launched mass clemency campaigns and tried to get the governor to grant clemency to domestic violence survivors who were behind bars for self-defense. And in some cases, like in Ohio, it resulted in large numbers of clemencies. And in other places like California, they were not as successful in getting a mass clemency immediately, but it led to other organizing efforts that might not have happened or might not have happened as quickly had it not been for the women's actions. But because we don't see domestic violence as a prison issue, and we definitely weren't seeing domestic violence as a prison issue in the 1990s and early 2000s, people weren't necessarily thinking that, oh, we should see what domestic violence survivors are doing you know, around organizing. Maybe they're doing something interesting. So a mass clemency campaign doesn't fall under prison organizing. It falls under like women's issues all the way off in that other corner. Mm -hmm. To piggyback off of that uh, question and, and mm -hmm. the comments that you just made, um, you know, in the introduction to your book, you wrote that uh, the book is about resistance, mm -hmm. not necessarily the militant kind you might think of when you hear the word, not so mm -hmm. much the fist in the air, riots and strikes, but the simple, robust fabric of survival so often woven by women prisoners. In that fabric can be found rich, textured lessons about solidarity, social change, political evolution, about how human beings and society as a whole can transform. And... Um, you know, the question that I have is, you know, when we think about resistance and you're writing about incarcerated women, um, why do you think it gets coded and read differently um, than other forms of resistance? Well, first of all, I actually want to give credit where credit is due. So the passage you just read was actually written by former political prisoner Laura Whitehorn. 
um, who spent 14 years in federal prison and was released in 1999 and graciously agreed to write an introduction to my book. Mm -hmm. um, but she really encapsulates what, you know, like what the ways in which resistance does get gendered and some things get gendered out of being defined as resistance. Mm -hmm. And part of this is, I think, a refusal to recognize that women, women's agencies and women's actions as legitimate, as valuable, in the same ways that we don't value women's work as valuable. Oftentimes, we don't value the ways in which women resist as important enough to be called resistance. So um, in the introduction, Laura Whitehorn shares being in the Baltimore City Jail um, when she was first arrested and there being um, a Thanksgiving meal. And all of the women were looking forward to the Thanksgiving meal because those who had been there before knew that that was the one time you could get a decent meal, basically. Mm -hmm. um, and so everybody was looking forward to it. And then Thanksgiving comes around and they get these turkey drumsticks that are like hard as rocks. Many of the women have like really bad dental care and bad teeth and they can't even bite this, you know, piece of turkey that they're given. It's kind of a rock. And they were just like, this is awful. And everybody's spirits were totally deflated because they had thought for this one day, they would, you know, they would get a decent meal. And Laura decides that she's going, um, that they should resist somehow. So her idea was, you know, like, well, when the guards come around, we're going to like throw our trays, you know, and, you know, like, and basically like, you know, like cause an uprising. And the other women were like, no, no. What we're going to do is we're going to reach out to like, you know, like the religious services people that come in and the volunteers that come in and see if we can get like sort of like a proper meal. And I forget if it was like another holiday meal or, you know, but like, you know, like actually have them come in and bring food and actually have a community meal. And Laura, who is a political prisoner and was, you know, arrested for, you know, uh, political actions was says that she remembered thinking like, oh yeah, you know, like a, you know, a community meal, big deal. And then what she realized was that, you know, like, that this created community, you know, like it wasn't, it wasn't just about, it wasn't just about like, you know, like we're all going to like throw things on the floor and make a stand, but it's also about like creating this community with the people around them, you right. know, in ways that aren't necessarily coded as resistance, you mm -hmm. know, like most people don't think of community building as a form of resistance, which you should ask, like, why not? Exactly. Humanize people, they <laughs> isolate people from each other. You know, oftentimes, Society in general dehumanizes and isolates people from each other, you know, so building community is an act of resistance, you know, whether you're inside or out against an isolating, alienating environment and oppressive conditions, because out of building community, other things can happen. Like mm -hmm. all of the clemency, camp clemency campaigns for domestic violence survivors came out of women building a community, saying, how do we support each other through our long sentences? Oh, wait a minute, we all have this thing in common, which is that we're all domestic violence survivors. Um, wait a minute, why are we all serving long sentences in prison for defending ourselves after years and years and years of abuse? You know, maybe we shouldn't. And that came about not because somebody came in and said, women, you have been oppressed. You know, you have experienced violence from loved ones and then you've experienced violence at the hands of the system and we must rise up and do this mass clemency campaign It's because women sat down and said, how do we support each other? And from there came the organizing. 
Fantastic. Thank you for that. Um, yeah, there's so many different things uh, running through my head uh, there. And that um, the introduction by uh, Laura was something that, you know, especially uh, the the resistance that took place, I think it was for the Christmas meal, right? Yeah. So that was Thanksgiving and then they organized for Christmas. And uh, she described that, you know, very festive atmosphere and, you know, the cooperation um, that they had gotten from so many people, including some staff um, at that facility um, and how <laughs> officials uh, were kind of, you know, uh, surprised that mm -hmm. they were able to pull this off right and um i think that's just one of the many examples that you use of how um you know resistance uh looks differently for mm -hmm. women um but the other uh thing that you know comes up for me is uh your use of women's lived experiences um as part of the telling of this story of incarcerated women and um right. and resistance and i think that you know this is really one of the uh main things of the book that you know for me was was a takeaway was that it really does challenge um the conventional thinking about um women in general women in prison um their agency um, any efforts that, you know, uh, and it could have been, it could be described as sort of passive efforts to uh, erase these stories of uh, rebellions um, in, in research and in, I would say, the popular mind, because people don't really think or talk about them in, in those contexts. I mean, we hear a lot, especially in the last few years about, you know, um, resistance and rebellion and you know whether it's the hunger strikes and things mm -hmm. like that that that's the image that people have in their heads about what is going on in prison and that stuff has to do with men and they're not quite sure what's happening with women they're hearing statistics about you know women are the fastest growing rate of you know people going to prison and particularly if you're looking at black and brown women and then um <sighs> trans women etc can you talk some more about that well, I think part, one of the reasons why I ended up writing my book is because I had amassed all of this information as I was doing this paper and I kept in touch with all of the women after my paper was done because it just seemed really crass and stupid and awful to say, well, I'm done, you know, with my paper. Thanks a lot. Have a nice rest mm -hmm. of your life um, in prison. Bye. So mm -hmm. I kept in touch with people and as time went on, you know, like the, the number of people I was writing to grew and they knew I was, you know, collecting stories. So they would just share things with me. So, um, so they would tell me about things like in Colorado in 2007, after there were a whole bunch of anti-immigration measures, um, the farmers in Colorado said, who's going to pick our fruit, you know, like, and um like we're really annoyed because our migrant laborers are not coming to the state so colorado passed a measure that allowed people in prison to go do farm work and they started a pilot program in the minimum security women's prison um which meant that women were being sent out for farm work and sometimes they were not necessarily qualified for farm work either because they had never ever seen a vegetable growing before or because they physically were not fit to be you know, 
on mm-hmm. a farm, you know, like they didn't have the like health and stamina to be doing backbreaking work for like, right. you know, eight to 10 hours a day in the hot Colorado sun. And what ended up happening was that there was a huge shift in the way that the prison was run because the farm was paying, you know, paying money to the prison per worker, you know, per hour. And it became sort of a moneymaker and the farm began to take priority over this quote unquote rehabilitation that prison is supposed to be part of. So people were being shifted around, people were being taken out of their programs. So say if you were in an education program, but your classification level, meaning like whether or not you had a violent or a nonviolent crime and your, you know, whether or not you mm-hmm. behaved yourself in prison made you eligible for the farm and you were deemed healthy enough to be on the farm. Well, too bad, goodbye education, off you go to the farm program instead. And so these were things that women were sharing with me as they were unfolding because they wanted me to know about this. And at the time I wasn't thinking about writing a book. I just had this like overflowing folder full of like letters and clippings and everything else that I was finding. And I kept thinking somebody else was gonna write this history. Mm -hmm. And I kept looking and I wasn't finding somebody else writing this history. Like I was finding bits and pieces, right? Like uh, uh, Juanita Diaz Cato wrote about the August rebellion that happened at the maximum security prison in New York, Bedford Hills mm-hmm. Correctional Facility in 1974. And if it wasn't for her, I wouldn't have known to start looking there. Carlene Faith wrote about a one day uprising in the California women's prison in the 1970s, you know, again, like, you know, some, but it was like, little bits and pieces, you know, hidden among other things. And if you weren't Mm -hmm. looking in that other thing, you weren't going to find that little bit and piece. Um, But I kept thinking somebody's going to write this book, you know, and somebody is just going to, you know, like this is just going to get written and then, you know, everybody will just know this. And it kept not getting written. And then, so one of the things is like, you know, like when I, when I finally was like, okay, maybe, maybe I should do something with this massive, you know, all these massive papers um, and I decided to write it. I wanted it to be something that the women themselves could participate in. Um, and keep in mind, I was not trained as a researcher or anything mm-hmm. else, you know, like, so, so I'm not sure if this is actually what participatory action research is, but you know, like <laughs> I wanted their participation in as much as possible in this. So I wrote to every single woman that I'd been writing to with a couple of exceptions of people who'd paroled and disappeared into the, you know, Mm-hmm. to the world. Um, and I said, hey, you know, I have this book deal. I met a publisher. He's interested in, you know, like a book about women's resistance and organizing and what you've been doing, you know. So I would like to know if it would be okay to use your, like, you know, like it's like, A, can I use the stories and anecdotes and experiences you've shared with me? B, if the answer is yes, you know, how do you want to be identified? Do you want your full name? Do you want just your first name? Do you want a pseudonym? You know, like, mm-hmm. like you know, giving them as much agency as possible. Right. And then see if you do want to participate, I will send you any chapter that you appear in. So, you know, so for like the education chapter, you know, like everybody who shared their experiences with education got a copy of the chapter so they could look it over, make sure that I got everything right, you know, like, add any details that like, you know, like I might've missed or, you know, like that they felt were really important, but they maybe hadn't shared in their letter. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it was like a sort of a bit of a laborious process, you know, like, you know, like printing out and snail mailing, you know, like chapters to people and really, really hoping that the prison 
mailroom person wasn't going to notice, you know, exactly what was being sent to. Um, and as far as I know, nobody, you know, had an issue with getting these like, you know, like printed pages out. And what ended up happening was women responded like, A, no woman said, no, don't include my experiences. A couple of them said, don't use my name, please. Mm-hmm. You know, or identifying information about the prison that I'm in because that would make me a target. A couple of them said, like, please use, you know, like a pseudonym or a nickname. But for mm-hmm. the most part, everybody was fine, you know, with having their experiences shared. And when I sent them their chapters, some of them started updating. They'd be like, oh, I didn't, I didn't tell you. So after we did this, you know, like then we did that, you know, like, and then they came back and they gave us an education program or they would respond to some of the assertions made by academics as well. Um, I specifically remember um, this woman, Rachel, reading the chapter on education and responding to Michelle Fine's studies that asserted that for many women, prison was the first time that they ever had this sort of like quiet space and time mm-hmm. to be to a higher education. And she really took issue with that because she's just like, you know, it is noisy in here. We're frequently on lockdown. Movement gets restricted. Sometimes you can't get to your class because a fight happened in another pod and they locked everybody down. You know, like sometimes the teacher orders, you know, like paper, pens, books, and you know, whatever else. And you're three weeks into the class and paper hasn't arrived yet. So how is anybody supposed to do their paper when there is no paper um, type of thing? You know, like, so she's just like, and, you know, people have relationships in here. Some of these relationships are abusive because they mirror what we've been conditioned to believe are what relationships should look like on the outside. So really, I don't believe that, you know, like she felt like it was like a rose colored view of it. And I was able to incorporate her responses to the study, not to bash Michelle Fine, but to be like, this is what a currently incarcerated college student is saying about mm-hmm. It's like, right. please don't think that this is the best thing ever for us. Now we're in prison, now we can get a higher education because there are all these obstacles to us being able to get a, an education as well. So people were engaging with not only their own stories, not only like, oh, what did you say about me? Is this right? But like, oh, overall, I find this premise kind of flawed, you know, like, and I want to respond mm-hmm. to this. And I really want, you know, like people not to think that prison is the best thing in the world for, for us in terms of getting higher education or that, you know, this, that, or the other is, you know, what is. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. I mean, this, the, the notion that it's uh, smooth sailing if you're mm-hmm. incarcerated and you can just sit down and kind of read books all day and write essays and mm-hmm. whatnot is, um, out of touch um, yeah. <laughs> with yeah. you know with people's reality, and I think um, that that was one of the chapters um, that you know uh, I went back to and I um, took extensive notes on because there were so many things in that chapter that stood out to me. And I think in terms of how you develop the telling of you know the kinds of resistance that's ha- that are happening um, with women. It's on page 81 at the bottom wrote, these experiences and insights should not lead to the conclusion that prison with its numerous disruptions and deplorable conditions is an ideal educational setting. RJ, who is pursuing her associate degree at Colorado's La Vista Correctional Facility states, quote, prison can remove us from those factors to some extent, end quote. She goes on to note that 
prison relationships can also be violent and abusive. And that while not as prevalent on the outside, drugs of any type are still available to women who want them. She also states that while the absence of daily responsibilities in prison allows more time to read and study, prison itself is an overwhelming environment. And that quote, just as personal growth is possible, it is all too possible that we are stored shelved in a prison warehouse needing a new environment, experiences, and and sources for continued growth, end quote. And I thought that, you know, that basically um, it speaks to exactly this uh, thing that, that you were just describing. Um, Brian, do you have a question? Yeah, I mean, I think in reacting to that, I'm thinking of the, the breaking the silence aspect of your, your book and, you know, touching on the, the alienation and the way that you crafted this book to put the lived experiences of women um, front and center. Um, I just wonder if you want to talk a little bit about um, both the struggle to be recognized in the press or taken seriously or being having uh, women's issues in prison being relegated to like, you know, just one-off stories here and there. Um, and then on the other side, sort of the response to that, which has been independent media, media by and for incarcerated women, um, newsletters and things like that. Uh, if you could talk about that sort of method of resistance there. Yeah, I mean, so this dates my book a little bit because now I feel like there's a lot more, and by a lot more, I don't mean like, you know, like it's in the news every day, but there was a lot more yeah. attention being paid to women's incarceration in the media than there was, I guess, like almost 10 years ago now when I was like, you know, like putting this book together. But right. by and large, still, when we think about prisons, we still think about men. You know, the show Orange is the New Black, you know, for all of its fault has shifted that narrative a little bit. So people now right. are like, oh, women in prison, like that show Orange is the New Black, you know, like even if they've never seen it an episode of the show like have seen something about it you know online on a bus you know on a bus station whatever um so like there is a little bit more of an understanding that there are women in prison and the media is not necessarily just blacking them out in the same way that they had earlier but there's still very much the sense of when you talk about prison you know like there's a sense that you're talking about men you're talking right. about men's issues <laughs> and men's problems um and then, I don't know if people who write about men in prison get this question a lot, but I often get the question of how do you know that they're telling you the truth? And I feel like sometimes that's a gendered question, you know, like, like women in prison are seem to be like sneaky or conniving or, you know, like, like somehow they're pulling the wool over your eyes to, you know, and like telling you not truths, you know, or, or lying to you, you know, for, right. for some nefarious reason or just to get attention. Um, so I think that part of that is that people are, you know, not willing to necessarily write about or cover women in prison issues, especially if there's not a way to fact check it in the traditional media sense. Um, I remember that uh, a few years ago when the Women in Prison Project of an organization here in New York called the Correctional Association of New York not to be confused with the American Correctional Association that goes around accrediting right. all these prisons that have right. massive horrific injustices and abuses, but this is a prison monitoring group um, that does like a lot around advocacy and policy, but they released a report um, showing that despite a 2009 law that said that state prisons were no longer allowed to shackle, which means to handcuff, put a gigantic chain around their bellies and ankle cuff women who are in labor, delivery, and postpartum recovery, 
like that seems to be a no-brainer and I don't know why you need a law against that but you know it was happening so you needed a law that said you should not do this um, but they found out that despite this law women were still being shackled and they interviewed numerous women who had had this experience and you know and they reached out to media and they let them know hey we're releasing this report we're going to be advocating for stronger legislation to protect women against this injustice and I remember reading like so I interviewed two of the women and mm-hmm. then you know like and I believe them and it was fine and then I read a New York Times article which actually tried to fact check whether or not somebody had been shackled and nowhere in wow. the report or in the woman's records had it had anybody said she'd been shackled but so what they did was they then you know requested like all the equipment that had been taken out you know or checked out of the prison to go to the hospital and among the equipment were the handcuffs the waist chain and the leg shackles so they were able to infer that but had it been a reporter that maybe thought that women just lied they might be like oh well it doesn't say here in your report in the prison's report that you got shackled so therefore i don't believe you right Um, so i think there are obstacles like that like you know if you aren't committed to or aren't don't have enough time, space, and commitment to say, like, what are the different ways I can figure out whether or not this injustice happened? Not just like, you know, hello, prison information officer, did you shackle this person? And they say, well, I'm looking at this person's report now, and it doesn't say anything about her being shackled. Right. You know, then then you can maybe infer that maybe this person was not shackled and they were lying to you. But maybe you say, oh, but, you know, wait they have to check out equipment. And so like, there's like a log every day of like, you know, like Officer Smith checked out, you know, handcuffs, leg shackles and a waist chain um, when taking this person to the hospital. You could say, hmm, why would you need to do that if you weren't planning to use that? Um, So I think that there is that um, issue. And then there's also just the idea that, you know, people don't want to read about women in prison or they don't want to read about women of color because that's predominantly who is in women's prisons, you know, mm-hmm. like in prisons in general, there are people of color and then in women's prisons, there are mostly women of color. And so there's this idea that people don't want to read about women in prison um, because it's not, you know, sexy. It doesn't, you know, it's not great clickbait unless it's something really outrageous. Um, you know, like one of my first TV experiences with the Melissa Harris Perry show and she's her saying that the producers always kind of groaned whenever she wanted to do a prison segment because I'm not sure how they track this in TV world, but like viewers were not watching the prison segments, you know, mm-hmm. like as much as they were the other segments that she was doing. Um, mm-hmm. So somehow it wasn't connecting in the viewers' brains. And these were people who were interested in, you know, sort of progressive politics and, you know, what was going on in the world. And, you know, and still when she did a prison segment, somehow like viewership dropped off. Um, so, so I think part of this is this idea that people don't want to hear about prisons as opposed to thinking like, well, how do we, how do we reach out and talk to them about prisons and the ways that it intersects in their lives? Um, so that it's not just sort of like those people over there. I don't know those people over there, you know, let them just stay over there. Who cares? As opposed to wait, there are intersections between incarceration and any other issue that I'm thinking about or that I care about or that affects me and my, you know, and my life. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I mean, the the thing that comes to mind is one, um, in terms of the not believing um, mm-hmm. women in prison is that 
officials and you know journalists um, and other folks are master gaslighters when it comes to you know um, to to responding uh, to complaints by incarcerated women, um, by incarcerated people in general, but more specifically um, to, incar uh, you know, to incarcerated women's uh, complaints about the conditions that they have to endure uh, on the inside. And, you know, this whole thing that you were just describing where this person was fact-checking whether this was true when they had to go and look at records. The person is telling you that this thing is happening. Mm -hmm. And, and uh, yeah, I mean, just... and it's also just that, <laughs> it's also that they, like, I feel like reporters take for granted that the version that they're saying is the truth that they're trying to compare it to is the version from law enforcement. I mean, it's not yes. just like coming from nowhere. Um, and so I feel like there's this desire to be like, well, what you're saying doesn't match up against like the true word of law enforcement. So, you know, how can we prove it? Mm -hmm. yeah. Well, and, and Maya said this uh, when we interviewed her, Maya Shenmore um, mm -hmm. of Truth Out. Uh, she said that, you know, she encounters this as well with, you know, uh, reporters when they come to her with the story and they're like, oh yeah, well, we have to make friends with, you know, the police and, you know, mm -hmm. um, law enforcement and whatever, you know, prison officials and what have you. Um, because that's the official line. So there, the shift in thinking to saying, okay, it, people can tell their stories and mm -hmm. we should be able to trust the stories that people tell um, is something that I think it, we're not doing such a great job of and, um, mm -hmm. and, and the gap um, that your book does fill is that, you know, it, it gets at this, you know, at this problem or these many problems of uh, trusting uh, women and letting them tell their stories. But I think that reflects something uh, that is happening or that happens in our society in general um, right. is that we don't believe women. Um, mm -hmm. There's always, you know, a general disdain for women who contest um, you know, oppressive conditions and whether it's domestic violence situations or sexual harassment, sexual assault or something else, we don't trust women as a society. Mm -hmm. And, you know, when someone goes to prison, we expect them to sort of enthusiastically and cheerfully embrace their oppression and to never resist it or contest it or to speak out against it. And I think that that's really problematic, but it also is in keeping with this kind of image that women should be quiet and, you know, not speak out against these things. Like you're not, you mm -hmm. shouldn't be airing your dirty laundry and, yes. you know, and, and that's, oh my God, that is such a corrosive way to think. I don't know. Yeah. I, I'm, I'm just, I'm just frustrated. Brian, say something intelligent and save me. Oh here. man, don't count on me for that. <laughs> Well, I think one of the things, too, that Maya had said is that, you know, when reporters say, like, oh, I have to make friends with the police or with the somebody in law enforcement, there are people whose jobs there are to answer your questions, you know, to answer journalists' questions. Right. They're like press officers or public mm -hmm. officers, and they that is their job. I mean, sometimes they don't answer your questions. There have been many a time when, like, I, like, send something, I tell them the deadline, and, you know, I follow up, and I still hear crickets. But that is their job. And so then if you say, well, this person chose not to answer, they chose not to answer. You know, like, if this Department of Correction does not give me an answer by the deadline, 
so be it. That is what I put down, you know, right. and I don't think you necessarily like that is their job. Just mm -hmm. like, you know, like you don't have to be best friends with, you know, like the guy at the gas station. If you don't want to be friends with the guy at the gas station, his job is to like either like pump your gas or to take your money for you pumping your own gas. Like mm -hmm. that is just the job there. And you don't mm -hmm. have to be friends with that person. You can be friendly to that person, but you don't got to like, you know, buddy up. And also I think it takes away from this, like, again, like, you said, Kim, it, it makes it so that it, it's like whose version is believable, you know? So we buddy up with, you know, the, the person in law enforcement who's going to supposedly give us the straight scoop. But how do you know that's the straight scoop? I mean, wasn't there just, I mean, by just, I mean, in the past few years, you know, like everything that came out around Chicago police and torture and black sites, you know, that have been covered mm -hmm. up for years. So, you know, like, well, if, if your idea is that like law enforcement always tells you the truth, I mean, that I, that notion should have been shattered by that, you know, mm -hmm. um, by like the shooting of Laquan McDonald, you know, like that should be, you know, that should be shattered. Um, mm -hmm. for, but for some reason there's a myth that persists that like, you know, like you can trust certain people Mm -hmm. And other people, particularly those who are incarcerated, are not trustworthy. And then, mm -hmm. for some reason, you know, women in prison are also considered like super untrustworthy. You know, mm -hmm. and because you have that combination of distrust and disbelief in people who are labeled as "quote unquote" criminals, and then this misogynistic lack of belief or trust in women in general, whether they are inside and then it's or outside or particularly when they have been seen as having transgressed some type mm -hmm. of, you know, some sort of social norm, which right. Kim, as you notice, like is, as you said, is, you know, you sit down, you be quiet, you don't resist, you don't raise your voice, you be, you know, you smile, you be polite, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And a woman who goes to prison kind of violates all of these social norms that we've been taught, you know, that women should be abiding by. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Indeed, indeed. And again, keeping in mind that, you know, most people in women's prisons are people of color and mostly women of color um, mm -hmm. who are inside prisons. So then their believability sinks even more because it's, you know, a bunch of black women, a bunch of brown women and a bunch of, you know, other, you know, not white yeah. women who are, you know, then saying these things um, mm -hmm. about a system that is massive and, you know, very well funded and very well entrenched, you know, in people's consciousnesses as they exist to keep us safe, you know, mm -hmm. even though they don't. But people have been fed this narrative and over and over and over from the time that they're really little, you know, to, you know, to now. And unless you actively, like you have a, you know, direct experience or a loved one or a curiosity about it, you know, you might just go about your whole life believing this narrative. Absolutely. So I want to go back uh, for a moment, uh, if you don't mind. Um, sure. We've been talking about education and um, and the organizing that that you looked at around uh, education needs for women in prison. Mm -hmm. um, and I'd love to hear some more about um, the kind of organizing that that happened and um, and what you took away from these examples. Sure. I mean. One of the things that I found, and I actually just did, you know, a, a, a sort of deeper dive story into um, education, was um, women have organized around education, but they've also organized around, you know, not only their own education, but bringing education to other people as well. Um, so at 
Bedford Hills, which is near maximum security prison for women, um, when Pell Grants were cut, um, Pell Grants being um, federal funds that are available to low-income people who are seeking to attend college, when they were cut in 1994 by President Clinton, um, it shuttered the college program at Bedford Hills. And many of the women were like, wait, what? You know, like either they had planned to go to college and they were like making their way through GED classes or they were in college programs and then were like, wait, wait, I thought I was going to at least walk out of here with a college education, right. you know, that hopefully will start to balance out the fact that I have like a gigantic gap in my resume. I have no credit score. I have, you know, a prison record. I have to check a box that says I've been convicted of a crime. And the women there organized to bring college back. So a group of them got together. They went to the prison superintendent and they said, you know, we want to bring college back. And this might not have worked had they been in a super punitive prison, but the prison superintendent at the time said, fine, you know, like, if you can figure out a way to do it, you know, like let's you do it. Um, and then they started, you know, reaching out to other people who were working in the prison, but you know, went home at night to their outside worlds to see who would help them figure out possible allies and possible people to connect with. You know, like how do you get access to college administrators on the outside? You obviously can't just write them a letter from you know a prison because they probably will throw it in the garbage. You know, so who? on the inside is able to help them with this. And then they also figured out like how many women would be eligible for college programs, you know, like how many women already had their GEDs, you know, like, and would be able to pass the college entrance exam, you know, how many women, you know, like still needed, you know, extra, extra help to get them to that point. How many women, you know, like were perhaps not proficient in English and so would need um, an English language course to be able to bring them up to being able to read and write fluently in English. Um, and so they conducted this study, which keep in mind that in prisons, as both of you probably know, and I'm assuming a lot of your listeners know, you don't get freedom of movement and you don't mm -hmm. actually wander all around the prison all day. Like, you know, like asking people things like, you know, movement is very restricted and confined. You are in, you are in this housing unit and you get a pass and you can go over there to that yard, you know, or you can go over there to the mess hall at this time, but you don't get to like, be like, I'm in housing unit A, and I'm going to go wander over to housing unit B and hang out there and see who, you know, see where right. your educational do, do interviews are. Yeah, you know? yeah exactly. exactly. <laughs> so, so they did that, and they also figured out, like, a, they also, you know, like, started meeting with potential college administrators, and they made the case to all these people in suits and ties, you know, from, and, you know, whatever, you know, like, business suit women wear, you know, as to why these colleges wanted to help them and why they wanted to say, donate a professor to, you know, like who would come in once a week to like teach a class um, to incarcerated women who are not gonna be able to afford this tuition and there are no Pell Grants to pay you anymore. Um, so why should you do this? And they made their case for why higher education was important and what the factors were on the outside that might have prevented them from obtaining a higher education. And I think for many of the people that they met with, it was the first time that they'd actually ever thought of systemic oppression and injustices. Mm -hmm. So it wasn't just sort of like the like, okay, we're going to like, you know, like organize amongst ourselves, but it's also like, we're going to organize. And then we have to make a case to people as to why they're going to donate their time and their efforts. And instead of having this professor teach a class, you know, 
on campus for which you can bill students X thousands of dollars for, you know, like this professor instead is going to drive into a prison and, you know, donate their time, you know, donate that hour and a half to teaching incarcerated women, you know, calculus. They did that organizing and they successfully brought back the college program, you know, which for many of them, you know, was the first time that they got to um, access higher education. And then for the women who weren't eligible for higher education, it made them realize that like, wait, if I sit through these GED classes or these adult basic education classes or these English language, you know, refresher courses, you know, like my eyes on the prize is to like, you know, like get a college education and have and come out of prison with something. So it's not like the end all be all is the college education, but the fact that you, but the fact that you can at least I have that balances out the fact that, you know, I've been in prison, I have no credit, everything else, everything else. Um, And that was something that the women themselves identified as really important to them. Nobody came from the outside and said, what you need to do is X, you know, the the women themselves said, this is what we want. Mm -hmm. How do we Mm -hmm. get to it? You know, and some Mm -hmm. of it was like, you know, like, you know, like down and dirty, like moving a ton of boxes out of a room that was like, you know, like a, you know, like sort of an overgrown closet so that they could make their first college office, you know, college learning center was like, great, you can have this room over here. It is floor to ceiling full of boxes. You still have your prison assigned work assignment. So, you know, like you get up at four in the morning, you like go to breakfast, you scrub pots and pans for eight hours, you know, go in, you know, you go back to your housing unit, you get counted, which for listeners who don't know is when everybody stands around and the guards count each and every person to make sure that everybody is still there. And after this long, dreary count process stop, you know, is finished, then instead of getting to like go take a shower or chill out, you haul yourself down to the basement and you sort through and you move boxes and you figure out where these stupid boxes are going to go so that you can have a classroom, you know? <laughs> and then when you're done with that, you go to dinner and then in the evening you come back and you're like, oh, we got these books donated. How do we set them up? How do we figure out this Dewey Decimal system? How do we, you know, like, what's right. the best way to do this? So really it was like this labor of love where people were like, we want this to happen. So in addition to working my prison job, you know, scrubbing pots and pans, hauling things, you know, like hauling gigantic bags of potatoes, you know, and everything else, then I'm going to spend my afternoon hauling boxes. Then in the evening, I'm going to figure out how to like organize books so that we have a college library. Um, and mm-hmm. again, this was something that the women themselves saw as important nobody told them Mm -hmm. you must do this and they were like huh what you know one thing we talk about often on this show is the limits of reform um as important as reform sometimes is to address issues in the short term so i really appreciated the part at the end of your book where you provide a bit of a history lesson on the incarceration of women um which is in a lot of ways a story of reform so with that in mind i was wondering if you can talk a little bit about the limits of reform and how reform has shaped the incarceration of women over time i mean so so there are two like threads of thought around incarceration there's reform which is prisons are broken and we just need to like tinker with them enough to to make them better um and then they will work as they are intended and then there's the other train of thought the abolitionist train of thought is that prisons are working exactly as they're intended to work which is to like you know like take people out of the population that are deemed as disposable or expendable or not wanted or undesirable and to put them far far away from everybody else and in the meantime there are all these other perks that come up like you know like uh companies getting to make a ton of money off of them um you know people getting jobs etc cetera, etc cetera. but like the main purpose is like they're working as they should. They take away the people that society doesn't want, 
you know, in, in its society. Um, and when we look at reform, women's prisons in and of themselves came out of reform. You know, they came out right. of the fact that women before this, before women's prisons were set up, women were incarcerated in men's prisons, sometimes in attics, sometimes in basements, sometimes in the cell next door to men. Um, there was a lot of sexual abuse going on at the hands of incarcerated men, at the hands of guards. Sometimes guards would actually prostitute out incarcerated women to the men who were there. Um, so there was a ton of sexual abuse happening. And so women's prisons emerged as this way to keep women separate from men and to end this kind of sexual abuse. Um, and so in 1874, the first women's prison was established in Indiana. And what I learned not too long ago is that there was a ton of other types of abuse happening in this prison in Indiana, including a gynecologist that worked at the prison he might have even have volunteered his time at the prison. He's known as like the father of modern gynecology. And the reason why we know so much about female um, reproductive organs and anatomy is that he was experimenting on the women in this supposedly reformed women's prison because he had this captive audience of women who needed healthcare. And so he, as the doctor, had the ability to do what he wanted with them, you know, to see like, how do you know, like, how does your, what does your clitoris do if I do this to it? You know, what happens if I give you that? What happens if I do this procedure on you? To women who did not have the ability to get up and go find healthcare someplace else. You know, who did not have the ability to be like, I'm not lying down on that table again. You know, whatever you did, you know, like, forget it. I'll just like suffer with whatever I have, whatever, you know, I'm not putting myself through this. So this was what came out of reform was that there was a separate women's prison, but it didn't get rid of the abuses, it just shifted them into another building. Um, and other states followed suit, and now we have women's prisons in every single state in the country. Um, and it also led to an increase in the number of women who were being sent to prison, because whereas before, if a woman had committed a crime, particularly a white woman, um, I should add, you know, since there's always the racial, when we're talking about mm -hmm. incarceration and criminalization, we must not forget that not every person of every race was treated the same. But when a woman appeared before a judge, particularly if it was a white woman, a judge would be often be reluctant to send this person, this woman to prison because he knew that it would mean being in an attic, a basement, or, or you know, in a cell right next to men's prisons. And this nice lady in front of him, or even this not so nice lady in front of him didn't deserve this. But once separate women's prisons opened, judges were like, great, you know, like you're not gonna get raped anymore, you go there, you know, like stop, you know, stop committing larceny, stop stealing from your employers, stop, you know, stop doing sex work, you know, or right. whatever it was women were being arrested for. You know, it's like, fine, you go and be incarcerated there now because it is a separate building and it is not the same hellhole as it would have been two years ago had I sent you to the men's prison. Um, and then there was also like a lot of torture and abuses that happened at the hands of staff. I mean, I already talked about um, Dr. Parvin in Indiana who experimented on women, but also the guards, you know, would punish women often very severely, um, you know, for minor infractions, like talking back, like, you know, like refusing to obey an order um, and things that, from what I understand, are not as punishable in men's prisons, you know? Um, like there's this idea that women are supposed to sit down, shut up and be obedient. And that was very much 
enforced inside women's prisons. So, so this idea that like reform is somehow going to, you know, like ameliorate all of these conditions historically has not played out that way. It just shifts. Um, mm. It just shifts these conditions into a different building, a different format. Um, and it doesn't address root causes of why women or why anybody is going to prison. It doesn't address poverty. You know, it doesn't address gender violence or violence in general. It doesn't address, you know, social inequalities. It definitely does not address racism. Um, so basically all it does is kind of like shift the window dressings of what you have. And these days we see it now when we're talking about shifting people from, like in California, there was a Supreme Court ruling that said California's prison overcrowding was so egregious that it prevented them from providing proper medical care to um, people in the state prison system in order that they decrease their prison population by some drastic amount. And so what California did was they embarked on a plan called realignment in which basically people would be sent to local jails, you know, to serve their sentences, thus decreasing the prison population but not necessarily freeing them and giving them support right, to live right. outside and be healthy. It just meant that you got, you know, instead of going to prison for three years, now you would go to the local jail for three years. Type mm -hmm. of thing. But you were still locked up away from your community, away from your um, family, away from your loved ones. You still had a criminal record. You still lost your job. You lost your housing. You know, if you were in a program or a substance abuse treatment facility or whatever, you lost all of those things because you were gone for three years and you come out and it still hasn't addressed what happened that caused you to get entangled in the legal system in the first place. And in a lot of ways, reform has made it easier to incarcerate more people. I mean, speaking specifically realignment, that led to a big jail construction boom across California to increase capacity and be able to house inmates there. So I guess this kind of leads to our last question, which is, what does abolition mean to you? Well, for me, abolition is not just getting people out of jails and prisons, but also creating a world in which the factors that lead people to jails and prisons are addressed and just aren't there anymore. So I don't want, I don't, abolition to me is not like we live in the Mad Max world where everybody fends for themselves. And you know, like we all like, you know, like arm ourselves to the teeth and fight to the death over things. But you know, what does, you know, a, what would a transformation of society look like in which, you know, we weren't A, pouring all this money and resources into prisons and B, you know, creating a society in which people's needs are met so that we're not, you know, like, so that people aren't doing things that harm other people or that harm can be addressed before it gets so bad that, you know, like that people are very badly hurt. Um, so that means, you know, like access to housing for everybody, access to food, access to jobs with living wages, you know, access to universal childcare. So that that way, you know, like people aren't, you know, struggling, you know, like to, you know, like if they have children and they can't, you know, afford, you know, like certain things because there's, you know, like one adult and like, you know, like that needs to like feed a family of three. It looks like acknowledging and addressing and eradicating racism and misogyny. So not just sort of like, oh, kumbaya, if everybody had meaning, uh, living wage jobs, racism would, would cease to exist. No, that's not the case. You know, like we've had racism for like, you know, like for centuries and that's not going to go away even if we had universal healthcare tomorrow. Like, you know, like, but really rooting that out and rooting out misogyny and rooting out the idea that certain bodies are fair game for other people to violate and to harm, mm -hmm. you know, whether it's, you know, like sexual assault or it's just sort of like, you know, I'm bigger and stronger than you. I can knock you out, you know, type of thing, you know, like, or I can bully you, you know, and, you know, like cause you harm 
because there you are or you know like you fit some weird misconception of like um of who it's okay to to harm you know or who i can get away with harming um so i think it's not only like equitable distribution of resources but really digging deep and saying like you know what are these root causes that keep us you know like in the same cycle of injustice and oppression and then rooting those out and it's not going to be an overnight process you know like obviously like it took centuries for us to get to this point you know like and it will take a while to get out of that you know out of this hellhole that we've dug dug for ourselves but it's not impossible you know mm -hmm. um like i mean like if we, if we think about the fact that we talk about prison abolition you know and you know like before that there was like there were abolitionists who believed that we should abolish slavery and back then people were like no you know, what are you talking about? That's ridiculous. Slavery is here to stay forever, you know, and eventually, you know, like they, they got, you know, they also got rid of that. So, so I think it's not just thinking like, okay, it's going to take too long, you know, whatever, we should just reform. But at the same time, also understanding that we need to work towards reforms that don't expand the system. So reforms that we, that will put into place changes that we then don't have to work against. So not how do we build a nicer prison Yeah. to accommodate the fact that we've overcrowded our prison, but how do we get people out? And also for people who need urgent changes now, like somebody, you know, who is pregnant or somebody who has cancer or somebody, you know, who needs something here and now doesn't get left out. So yeah. Yeah. an example is in Oklahoma, they have like a super, which has the highest rate of women's incarceration. They have a hugely overcrowded women's prison. And so I don't think anybody in Oklahoma is proposing this because nobody wants to pay for it. But like the solution should not be, oh, we should build a bigger prison to house all of these women. The solution should be, what is happening in Oklahoma that we're sending so many women to prison? Why do we, why do we rank like in the bottom for mental health care? Why do we have so many women with mental health issues that aren't getting treated? Why don't we have health care? Why do we have so much poverty? Why, you know, why, 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 right. you know, aren't we addressing all of these factors that lead women to get entangled with law enforcement and then get sent to prison. And the solution should not be like, oh, let's just build a bigger building to put them all in. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Absolutely, I couldn't agree more. Um, I think your book, Resistance Behind Bars, The Struggles of Incarcerated Women, I read it years ago and it is still one of the most relevant and important books on the topic that I've seen. Where can people find your work? How can they seek out what you do? Okay, so they can, um, if you go to my website, victorialaw.net, you can find some of my recent works. I am not super great about updating it all the time. So um, you can find like my recent works as of like a month and a half ago. Um, you can also find my work on Truth Out, um, Rewire News. You can follow me on Twitter, L-V-I-K-K-I-M-L, um, or just Google Victoria Law, and you'll come up with me, and you'll come up with you know, some things in Australia as well. <laughs> well, Victoria, thank you. It's thank been a pleasure. I really appreciate your time um, today. Yes, thank you for having me on.